In this episode, I'm joined once again by writer and theorist David Skabina. In this episode, we discuss Ted Kaczynski's book, Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How. I'd like to wish all listeners a happy new year, and I'd also like to thank all those who have supported Hermetics throughout 2021. And if you would like to support the podcast and keep it going indefinitely, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, I hope all of you have a great 2022, and please enjoy. So, David Scabina, thanks very much for joining us once again on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be back. Um, so... We this time we're we're not discussing panpsychism again. We're actually discussing the other sort of side. I don't want to split your work into two clear sides. I mean, there's there's more going on, right? But the sort of the two sides to your work. The one side that maybe more people I don't know maybe more people know you for is your work on technology and specifically sort of anti-technological or tech critical philosophy, uh, and also specifically around the the uh, I want you know I say thinker um, that we're talking about today. Ted Kaczynski or Theodore Kaczynski, the money people will also know as the Unabomber, um, serial killer, but also uh, a extremely unique, to the point, and articulate anti-tech philosopher in his own right, primarily known for um, Industrial Society and its Future, which was published, which is his manifesto, which was uh, published in the 90s. Uh, well, so sort of for- forcibly published in the New York Times in the 90s. And we're really talking today about uh, his, I believe, his latest book called Anti-Tech Revolution, which was published in 2016, I think republished in 2020. Um, so we sort of have these two volumes of his work at the moment, which is Technological Slavery, which I believe you helped edit and put together with, uh, was it Feral House? Publisher? Yes, that's right. Yep, yeah. yep. So which is the manifesto, uh, a criticism of an uh, anarcho-primitivism and a few other letters. And then we have this sort of second volume now, Anti-Tech Revolution. So we're sort of focusing on that. But I mean, to begin, um, just to open up this conversation, in terms of people, uh, I guess, uh, people people working with this stuff, you have, you have sort of spent the most time actually in written conversation with Ted Kaczynski, you know, since he's, since he was incarcerated. Probably one of the most. I mean, I don't know if it's the literally the most or the longest, but but uh, relatively detailed, high-level discussions uh, for many years, going back to late 2003. I think was our first letter that we uh, that we exchanged. Um, yeah, at the time, you know, I was uh, a newly hired uh, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Michigan, which was Kaczynski's alma mater. And I was developing a course on philosophy of technology. I wanted to include his work, both the manifesto and then anything that had occurred uh, since then. And he was pretty much, it was pretty much a media blackout for many years after he was imprisoned in uh, 1997. Um, yeah, the media just just kind of black holed him and you didn't hear a thing about him. So I decided to write to him in 2003 to just find out what was going on, what he'd been writing. And it turned out he'd been doing quite a bit. He had uh, a number of uh, essays that he had written that were not published. He had some uh, some new thoughts on the manifesto. And, uh, yeah, he had some ideas that he, he wanted to, to, to circulate and to discuss. And I was willing to have a kind of a kind of a back and forth dialogue or debate with him, in a sense, because I was sympathetic to most of his points. Uh, but I knew that there were there were criticisms of his views. And so I, uh, in many cases, in my letters, I adopted sort of a critical stance that I would sort of throw 
skeptical comments at him, you know, so someone could say this about your idea, or what if someone came up with this counter proposal, what would you say? And that prompted a lot of discussion back and forth where he was defending, actively defending his ideas against criticisms. And uh, that was a, a lot of the bulk of our letters for, for the first two or three years was really a kind of an elaboration of his of his ideas, a defense, and a response to critiques. And eventually that ended up being the book Technological Slavery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just, just on a, I mean, I'm intrigued. Has anything in your own life come of this, uh, this correspondence? Have you had any knocks on the door? <laughs> well, no, actually, I, I haven't. I mean, it's been a little bit surprising. You know, I always kind of expected... Um, some sort of follow-up or contact or, you know, I don't know, right. If the FBI wants to have a chat, I'm, I'm happy to do that. You know, I was never really afraid of these guys because everything, I mean, everything was on the up and up. I was a professor at Michigan. I was writing him letters about uh, theory and philosophical ideas and okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Prisoners have rights to communicate. Uh, I have a right to pursue interesting philosophical ideas. Philosophy of technology was one of my areas of expertise. So yeah, they had literally nothing to say. So I suspect that the authorities, well, maybe somewhere in the background, they're, they're, they have a file on me. I don't, I don't know. I'm guessing probably something like that exists. Uh, but nothing that I know of, no, no consequences at, uh, at the university, none in my private life. Um, probably, like I say, the authority figures, they figure that it's best not to raise the attention level and the publicity because they know that's going to hurt them. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, and this holds true in many subjects, actually, uh, the, the the figures in power probably prefer to just not discuss you at all, not, mm -hmm. not discuss things, not get you into the news, because then your ideas start to get discussed. And the best is just to ignore it. So I suppose, if anything, that was a kind of a strategy on their part, we'll just leave Skrbina alone, we'll let him write the letters to Kaczynski and We'll just put up what put up with his books, and uh, there's nothing they can do about it anyway. And it can only hurt them if they if they decide to come after me. So mm. yeah, I, okay. I think that's where where it was at. Okay, I see, I see. So were you aware of the manifesto on its like original original publication? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've been tracking the Unabomber story in the early '90s when it was starting to come out, and was really fascinated by the uh, the, little, the little bits and pieces that would slip out into the into the news stories. And you could you could see that there was some intelligence there. There was uh, kind of a real think thought process going on. So yeah, I was really really kind of fascinated in the whole story. I just I guess I never really thought the whole thing would would see the light of the, light of day, and then. Suddenly, what, what was it, September 19, I think, 1995, and then suddenly, boom, without any warning, boom, there it is. Washington Post full manifesto was published. I was really was really shocked and excited, and I remember I ran out that morning and grabbed a couple of copies of the newspaper, and, you know, I got still have, I still have a copy today, and started typing it up, started putting it in processed form, because this was sort of almost like pre-internet. Nobody really had easy access to uh, documents online. So I had to literally take a newsprint copy of the manifesto and, and just by hand and my wife and I, we sat down and we typed, typed up the whole darn manifesto <laughs> just to get it in word process form. So yeah, that was, that was quite, quite an exciting moment actually. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So in terms of your correspondence, uh, do you, have you ever, I don't want to do the sort of um, killer fanboy thing which is quite common these days you know with yep. all these netflix documentaries but have you got an impression of what uh he's like as a, a as a person does that come through in the letters or 
is it strictly theoretical to the point anti-tech philosophy? Well, yeah, I mean, our topics were always theoretical. I never asked him about his personal background. I mean, his, you know, his family, his upbringing. I didn't really care about all that. This is what the, this is what the documentaries want to talk about. Um, so, I, you know, I and I told him right up front, right at the very beginning, I had no real interest in those things. Didn't really want to talk about them. I just wanted to, to talk about the, the question of technology. So, uh, so that was really the entire focus of all of our letters. I mean, even in that process, though, of course, you know, little bits and pieces of of the person's life come come through. And, you know, I was really always impressed. He was always very respectful and he, he wrote uh, very, you know, lucid, rational letters on a routine basis and uh, very thoughtful, um, uh, very, you know, serious in his views, kind of, uh, I guess I would say, unrelenting in, in his in his uh, position. But uh, I mean, that's fine. He has a right to do that. And uh, yeah, just just uh, a very uh, re- respectful uh, and rational correspondent. That's that's really how I found him to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, moving in moving into the book. I mean, so this sort of yeah. made me made me smile when I, you know, I reread Anti Tech Revolution because uh, it had actually been a while since I'd read it. So what made me what made me smile is even from, you know, prison. And I guess he probably saw this back in the day as well. One of the first things that he mentions in the book is the fact that many anti-tech advocates basically keep reading and spouting anti-tech philosophy. You know, they read Alul, Zerzan, Illich, maybe even Heidegger, uh, Edward Abbey, etc. All these thinkers, and there's more and more and more and more. And they keep reading these books and talking about them. And they this for them is has become sort of a form of of praxis and basically Kaczynski says like you know this 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 was bound to happen and this is this is has replaced actual action for them and and it it makes it seem as if Kaczynski is stating that really there isn't none of these writers go far enough is that do you think that's what he's saying and and where do you think the line is for for him where none of these other anti-tech thinkers are you know taking the the leap that which he thinks they should take yeah well you know um, most, I'd say virtually all of Kaczynski's ideas exist, exist in some form in earlier thinkers, earlier writers, which, which is fairly obvious. It's true for all of us. I mean, that's no surprise. Um, so, yeah, you do have harsh critics in, in people like Ilul in his own weird way, Heidegger, you know, and then, uh, yeah, Illich and uh, Lewis Mumford and so forth and Herbert Marcuse. So, I mean, these guys were all sort of technology critics, they had different angles on the problem. Uh, some of them, you know, I mean, they were they were intellectuals, so they tended to write uh, intellectual critiques. Well, okay, this is expected. Um, they were generally not, generally speaking, not activists, so they weren't really interested in active policies, you know, against technology. Some of them did talk about the need for revolution. Uh, Ilul hinted at it a couple of times. Uh, Marcus talked about that. Illich does a couple lines in Lewis Mumford where he talks about the need to dismantle the mega machine. So, I mean, there's sort of those ideas are there, but but they, of course, these thinkers are not sort of, you know, Marxist revolutionaries. So they're not going to really elaborate uh, on on how this could happen and the need for it. So they just they would just sort of describe the system, describe the evils of it. 
criticize it as thoroughly as they could, maybe say, look, there's a need to subvert the system in the end because there's no other alternative. And then they would they would leave it at that. So, you know, right, obviously, Kaczynski is in a position where he can go further and stronger. He can really press the revolutionary case, whereas maybe they, they could not quite do it in their positions. So hard to know what they were really thinking, you know, were they sort of self-censoring because of their positions? We don't really know. Um, and, and most, of course, most modern day critics are very, very tepid. They're just very, they want to deal with abstract ideas and sort of vague criticisms. And, you know, very few professors these days are really kind of true radicals. They don't really want to get into the messy activism piece because it, I don't know, it looks bad or it's just, you know, too threatening to their status and they're making good money and they don't want to jeopardize that. And, you know, probably their universities are getting money from tech tech companies and so forth, and they don't want to have any blowback from that. So, you know, it really takes an independent person with 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 a sort of a strong moral backbone and no real ties that can be threatened to him or her to, to really take the strong view. So Kaczynski, of course, was in such a position. He was completely independent. He had no connections whatsoever, nothing to worry about, and he could write absolutely freely and as harshly as, as he chose to. Um, so, I mean, it was a kind of a luxury of his position. I don't know that we should criticize these other big name critics. I mean, they they sort of, you know, did as much as they could within their sphere of influence. You know, we always tend to look in hindsight and say, well, somebody should have pressed this point and they should have made a stronger case for this. And yeah, maybe maybe they should have in hindsight, but it's, it's hard to jump back, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 years and say, well, why didn't so-and-so do this, you know? So, uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I, uh, Kaczynski is, I mean, he's legitimately the harshest, most active critic of the system. So, I mean, anybody is going to be, going to take a less, a less potent, uh, less activist position than him, sort of by definition. And he could always criticize other people because he looked, he says, look, I've taken the strongest view possible. Everybody's less strong than me. Well, okay, so be it. I mean, somebody's going to be at the extreme limit and it happens to be him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a that's a fair point. I mean, also in terms of the, um, you know, lecturers not getting involved in the activism, that's sort of dealt with in the in the essay. The system's neatest trick, right? Also, this sort of double bind where they 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 can't criticize the the foundations that that hold them up, right? So there's always a limit to. Oh, yeah. sure. You know, postmodern deconstruction is like, yeah, we can deconstruct everything, but we can't deconstruct the education system itself because I still need a paycheck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's, it really takes either, a, you know, a truly independent intellectual. Right. Maybe I suppose theoretically somebody who's tenured should be able to write this. But usually you don't get tenure unless you've already proven yourself to be sort of a, a defender of the system. So, I mean, that's not much help. You, you almost have to really be kind of a renegade independent thinker and, and willing to just, uh, you know, speak, speak the hard truth and, and, and uh, not really worry about those kind of connections. And it's a, it's a pretty rare thing in, in uh, intellectual circles. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So in terms of that sort of, you know, praxis and practical element of, of, his work he does state that this book is a textbook and do you what why, why do you think this is so important for him to make it clear that this is a textbook and should be studied as as such well yeah i think i think he thinks of it as a kind of a manual right for for would-be revolutionaries out there to give them a firm basis a firm footing and some and some some details some guidelines as he says about how how to 
deal with the system, uh, things to avoid, you know, problems that you want to uh, avoid getting into, and maybe some strategic approaches and how you can go about uh, tackling the system. So it's it's a kind of a kind of a guidebook or a primer, I, you know, to call it a textbook. Um, I, I don't know if he uses that exact word. I mean, that implies it's just a little bit of a field of study. I, you know. For me, it's more of a manual, right? It's an action manual that's that's supposed to be used by people who really want to sort of be serious revolutionaries in some sense against against the system. Hmm. Okay, okay. I'm surprised it hasn't been banned. It's still on Amazon, but then I guess it it isn't. Uh, it isn't like a what was the famous one in the. So the eighties, the anarchist cookbook was that what it was called? Oh yeah, anarchist yeah. cookbook. Yeah, exactly. So well, it's not okay, along so those lines. Yeah, so that's explicitly dealing with, you know, violence and, uh, you know, bombs and, you know, violent uh, tactics. So, uh, but there's, of course, there's nothing like that in any of Kaczynski's writings. There's nothing in the manifesto, nothing in technological slavery, nothing in anti-tech revolution that really talks about violence, nothing that advocates violence, nothing that talks about killing, nothing that talks about bombs. I mean, it's really sort of an abstract, in that sense, kind of discussion about the, 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 the nuts and bolts of of how revolutionaries work against a larger social power that they're that they're confronting, and you know he he doesn't talk about the 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 violent angle. I suppose maybe that was his sort of constraint because he knows that he would be blocked from communicating any any references to violence from the prison because the prison system is of course screening everything that goes out, all of his letters, any manuscripts are being pre-read and screened to make sure that they don't cross any of these boundaries about advocacy of violence and, and, and killing and so forth. So, I mean, it's not his doing. It's almost by definition, that's that's their little bit of censorship that they are able to exert. Uh, but what he writes is, of course, just, just the ideas, the intellectual history, the theory, and, uh, and uh, you know, he does really a remarkably good job at that. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I mean, I feel sort of a strange obligation i guess to address them because as as you've put it there that you know in all of his writing there isn't there isn't there isn't violence there isn't here you should go out and bomb or you should you should there's nothing there's nothing like this and then there's there's not even which is found in some other writers work there's not even a push to say vandalism or destruction not that i can recall now i don't want to cheapen what happened but it almost seems then in that sense as an almost um jekyll and hyde situation where there's this completely rational you know, systematic uh, uh, writing and, and theorizing of the theory itself and saying, look, here's the state we're in. And then all of a sudden there's this like, there's this burst of complete irrationality uh, in, in the in the frame of these murders. You know, they don't really fit the, the, the crime doesn't fit the theory in a sense. And I guess, do you think maybe they've been tethered together, even though actually if you were to read the theory, if to read the manifesto, to read Anti-Tech Revolution, there's nothing in there that says that this should be done. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Kaczynski's bombings, I think he is always viewed as a unique situation, right? So it's, they weren't necessarily revolutionary per se, but they were, they were a means to gain the notoriety and the leverage that would allow him to really publish the manifesto in a high visibility venue. So I think, I think he viewed it as a unique situation uh, at his time and his place, um, you know, that, that, um, you know, did maybe did not, like I say, didn't directly serve this revolutionary purpose, but was more of a more of a leverage tool to, to get the message out in, in the in the biggest possible way. Um, 
I mean, of course, there's that example. That example exists out there, and I guess in theory, other people could could follow that same example. But, but like we said, he never he never advocated it. He never suggested it. Um, I guess he never really found it necessary to do that. I mean, you know, you, you I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in the history of revolutionary thinking, but you know, I mean, even going back to people like Marx, you know, I don't. I don't think Marx ever said, get out there and start slitting throats, you know, or starts, you know, shooting people. I mean, they don't talk that way, right? They're just saying, mm-hmm. hey, you know, we're being oppressed by the bourgeoisie and the proletariat need to uh, arise and take take control. And OK, well, you know, there's different ways to do that. And I guess different people interpret that differently. So I think this is just maybe one one more in that long history, long established history of revolutionary thinking and uh you know, each person sort of comes to the situation with unique circumstances and unique history and unique motivations. And, you know, I, I think it's it's kind of left left to each individual to decide what these ideas mean and what if what if anything they can do about them. Mm. OK, OK. Well, drawing drawing on the, the comment with Marx in there, I mean, you, you bring forward a good point, really, that and that, and that uh, Ted, Ted himself sort of brings about, which is that. Um, and, and perhaps I'm, I'm a pessimistic reader of this book because many of these questions I realize revolve around the same point for Kaczynski, which is that he he isn't he has a, a philosophy of human agency in relation to technology, which he really removes a lot of it. You know, in terms of Marxism, he's just saying, look, the thought the the air of Marxism was was in the atmosphere. You know, if Marx wasn't around, someone else would have filled filled that place. And in the same in the same sense, he also talks about how you know we, we look to a president or a prime minister, but really they're just this sort of symbol for a false security. And actually, there is no such thing as this like oh we go to this person and they just sort everything out. Really, what we're talking about, I guess, in vague terms, is sort of the fact that that power is just in the atmosphere, and we can never really. Uh, find a way to actually utilize it for our own betterment and and w- i guess i guess one would you agree that that's sort of the correct reading that we don't we can never really get a grasp on power for in kaczynski's terms but also you know is, is there a is there a way out of that to be able to actually change things well you know i i think the idea is that systems large complex technological systems seem to have a momentum and a kind of inertia of their own and and they and just by the nature of their structure and their functioning and the and the energy you know involved in these systems they they function in in very necessary ways sort of independently of you know any one little element even a leading element even a president or a prime minister or a ceo you know large corporations large institutions ha- have this kind of structural momentum and, and and in fact they're designed that way right i mean they can't they can't really function if you lose one person or two people even even the top people the system has to go on it has to keep functioning and we just eventually we replace that person with someone else and then we carry on so uh, tech, large technological systems seem to have this characteristic of 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 this self guiding self motivating structure that that drives them forward uh, in in um, consistently with, let's say, technological or system-wide imperatives Mm -hmm. that they sort of are compelled to follow. And I think this is partly why, you know, individual people are relatively impotent when it comes to guiding these systems. You you, you want to blame the president or the prime minister for things that go along. Well, look, it's a structural problem in this large and vast system, and even one important person can't really 
really do anything to significantly change the system. It's just the structure of an advanced technological institution. And, and that's both for good and bad. I mean, that the system can carry on and it's not perturbed by loss of individual p- people. But if it's, if it's doing harm, if it's causing damage, um, then we have a very hard time stopping this thing or controlling it just by, by the same, those same rules. So it's hard for people to claim real control over the system. It's hard for uh, would-be revolutionaries to disrupt the system, again, for that very reason. It's, it's a very dispersed, decentralized uh, kind of structure that, that has this very amorphous nature. And uh, yeah, there's problems on both both sides of the coin, really trying to you know grapple with this thing, whether you're opposing it or you're supporting it, you're trying to steer it. You know, uh, um, one of the chapters, the first chapter of anti-tech revolution is kind of how we really don't have the ability to control these institutions. We can't control the progress of society. Uh, these things are basically beyond our rational control. And, and, uh, and yeah, that, that actually bodes ill. That, that pushes one towards the most extreme uh, solutions because uh, the, the normal ones, the, the so-called rational ones of just tweaking or trying to steer the system uh, just don't seem to work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I mean, what would Kaczynski make? Because because on you know you often get this debate between uh, individual agency and corporate agency. So people would say, "Well, look at Amazon's carbon footprint. We need to do something about this." And I'm actually, you know, I'll I'll put some skin in the game here and say I'm far more on the side of, "Well, who is it who's buying things from Amazon?" Right? It is the individual consumers. So what would Kaczynski make of that argument that actually? Y- to have this sort of revolutionary overhaul, you really do need to, to I, I would say you need to uh, reduce the idea that we need to consume so much. Or would Kaczynski say that, well, that desire is sort of brought about from Amazon itself sort of thing? Yeah, right. Well, so, I mean, theory, sure, right? Amazon has millions of customers. And if all those millions of customers somehow got together and decided, hey, it's a good thing, we're going to, you know, stop buying from Amazon or whatever, right? Um you know, I suppose, or threatened Amazon, hey, we want you to print only, you know, whatever recycled paper. I don't know what you might want. You, in theory, of course, you could do that. But but practically speaking, it would take such a huge counter-organization. You know, how are you going to get millions of disparate, disparate uh, customers together and coordinating, discussing and agreeing on something and taking action in a coordinated way? Yeah, it's almost impossible. It would take a it would take an Amazon-sized counter-organization to confront the Amazon organization itself. Mm-hmm. So this is this is almost impossible, right? So this is kind of the practical matter of of, of dealing with these sort of issues that they're so complex that they're beyond um, the, the means of any any sort of like I say rational ideological sort of control or 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 or, uh, or coercion or whatever you would might want to do with them. So you know that that's. That, that's what keeps driving, you know, Kaczynski's argument again and again. He drives always drives you back to you cannot you cannot rationally control these things. The best you can hope for is to try to pull the plug on these guys, uh, you know, just undercut them from the base, drive them into collapse, uh, heighten the stress on them. And that can be done by a relatively small group of people. Pr- probably it doesn't take millions of customers to, you know, to if you can get to the base of a technological system or something like this, maybe it can be done with a smaller number of, of people. It doesn't take, a, like I say, lots of lots of people to kind of get together and, and, and deliberately come to some conclusion about how they want to respond. So I, I think that's kind of the general thrust, right? Where there's really just these large systems, there's no way to counter them. So just, just work on heightening the stress, pull the rug out from under them and 
make it as hard as possible for them to to uh, carry on really okay okay but there are, the, the problem is though i guess is that capitalism is extremely liquid right it, it can pretty much subsume anything into it and say this is now capitalism you want you weren't ready for that you know it hasn't met anything yet so how do you Howard Kaczynski, because <laughs> yes. what I'm saying is yeah. the irony of the irony of anti-capitalism is that the stress which is against capitalism can never really be a form of consumption, right? You can't be like, right, we're going to push capitalism. I'll consume. I'll consume. Yeah, exactly. You can't. Right? You, you yeah. can't do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, right. So it has to be right in the case of capitalism, some kind of anti-consumption movement, right? Which is just saying, yeah, stop consuming things, or. Or we, I mean, there's other ways you could sort of you know wreak uh, havoc in a financial system with the financial markets. I mean, there's been things in the stock market where relatively small groups of investors were, you know, causing local chaos in the systems, and they had to implement new new policies to try to block these guys. Um, but you, but you're right. I mean, both capitalism and technology have a really are really robust systems that can really uh, incorporate a lot of resistance against them and, and compromise that resistance. Mm -hmm. So so you really have to. And, and, and Kaczynski is good at emphasizing this. You really have to tackle this these systems where in areas where they cannot compromise, where where there's just no way that that, that they can sort of give ground. You know, it's the it's the basic elements. It's the it's the communication infrastructure. It's the power grid. You know, it's it's basic. Uh, you know, uh, te technological modes. Maybe it's you know medical genetic technology, which somehow seems to be essential to the future of the system. Um, you know, you really gotta gotta focus on these kind of uncompromisable points and really kind of press home on those. And at the same time, you really, I mean, in a sense, it's a little bit of a waiting game too. And 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 he's emphasized this as well that. You know, all revolutionary movements really have to bide their time. They, there's, they can't just sort of up and decide and just, you know, get the pitchforks and the flaming torches and just bring the system down. It just doesn't work that way. You could, you have to sort of organize, get yourself together, get a focus, and then, and then there's just a lot of biding of your time until sort of the time is right. And and you know it's it's hard to know when that will be and what what are the signals for that. You never really know. Uh, um, but, you know, Kaczynski has been uh, more than once, he's, he's stated this idea that, you know, revolutionary action really on its own can't really do anything. The, the system is just too robust uh, mm -hmm. to, to, to it, it can fend off or incorporate or compromise any, any, any uh, near term threats to it. There has to be these larger structural problems uh, that are really confronting the system from the outside, so to speak. And then maybe a revolutionary movement from the inside can kind of hit with a double pronged attack. And then maybe that would be the most effective means for action. So in, in, in our case, we're really sort of waiting for capitalism to burn itself out either by, you know, consuming the resources of the planet or producing so much waste that we all start kind of drowning in our toxic byproducts or waiting for, you know, global ecosystem collapse or the food supply to go down. I mean, there's lots of nightmare scenarios, right, in, in the environment uh, that, that could happen in the, in, the, in the next few decades that would really put huge, huge stresses on, on the system. And, and it may be closer to, to some kind of breakdown than we realize. I think it's, it's very hard to see how close the system is. And you keep, you keep getting feel, feeling like there's these little tremors that are coming through, you know, whether it's financial shocks or it's pandemics or, you know, these, these little sort of tremors that are coming through, like, you know, the system isn't really very, isn't very uh, good against some of these you know, more, more fundamental challenges. And it, it might not take much to just kind of push that baby right over and, 
you know, once, once those dominoes start falling, it's like, get out of the way. Cause it's going down. It's going fast. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I'm in complete agreement. And, um, I've, I, 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 I'm also in agreement with the, the idea that there is tiny things that the system at the moment just can't seem to really deal with, even though, you know, capitalism has its ways of it. it capitalism is a master at biding time and because it, it's a master of credit, right? It's a master of creating things where there actually isn't anything. So it can just hold up things with nothing. Um, but as you say, I, I, I'm, I'm in full belief, so full agreement sort of with the Linkola view that, that the collapse of the system will be something which we really have never, never thought about. I mean, he thought that, uh, the collapse of biological life would be, you know, the death of a certain algae in water would just collapse an entire ecosystem. You know, these tiny, tiny things, which you just don't think about and you go, well, that's not there anymore. So we're just completely ruined. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but the one thing I would say in terms of this idea of revolution, if you take the French revolution or if you take the Marxist revolution, there, they were fighting for something which I would say isn't as big of an existential risk as what we have now, right? So they were like, if their revolution fails, well, they're back to bourgeoisie rule or they're back to monarchical rule. If we don't act fast, we're on course, if you're in agreement with climate change or if you are or not, whatever. Um, If you are in agreement with that, however, which I believe, you know, Kaczynski very, very much is, our risk is the death of potentially billions of people, right? Yeah, so it's it's exactly. not it's not yeah. a it's not like if we fail, well, back to having a king and maybe some of us get beheaded. It's yeah, it's no, the complete no, death right. of the planet. Exactly, the stakes are much higher, right? I mean that that's it's a whole new ballgame. We've never really faced this before. We have no evolutionary history, no social political history to deal with what we're facing now. That's that's a, it's a, a utterly unique situation, which really puts us in a bind because we we don't know the markers, we don't know the signs, we don't have the examples in history to really look from. You know, we can look at collapse of the Roman Empire, or you know, vaguely sort of similar things. Um, but but like you say, it seems like the stakes are really much higher this time. So um, in, in a sense, that that supports the revolutionary cause, right? Because if people get the idea that if, if we don't succeed, we die. Well, that, that's that's a pretty motivated revolutionary, right? I mean, you're going to just get out there and you're going to say, you know, to, to, to hell with it. I'm going to just going to take whatever action I have to because if because if I'm I'm going to die otherwise, uh, I got nothing to lose. And 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 we can well imagine if if uh, you know some next you know, mega killer pandemic comes rolling around in a year or two, and which it could e- easily happen. And I mean, you're like literally millions and millions of people are, are you know dying, and people feel like, hey, this is like the end of the world. Then then people will just probably take more extreme action against the system. So it's not hard to imagine these kind of things happening uh, in the relatively near future. Well, I'm not sure we need to imagine them. I heard one, I heard something the other day, which I remember thinking back when I was younger, I think this is going to happen in our lifetime, which is now in the UK, one in five people is uh, completely antibiotic resistant. Antibiotics just don't work anymore. No. One in five people, right? So yeah. that's like, okay, something comes along. Guess what? You're, you're dead. It's like you're dead. We, 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 used, dead. we used them too often. And um, yeah, you know, that's, yeah. that's how it is. They, they and, and But the, the funny thing is that same, that same narrative is happening time and time again, and yet we're not, we still believe we can eat our cake and have it too, right? We were told, look, if we keep, and even the scientists knew, the doctors knew, and they told everyone, and yet they kept giving them out, right? So if we take that narrative of, look, we knew in the 80s, if we keep using antibiotics at the rate we are, there's going to be a resistance. And yet what did we do? We kept using antibiotics, and now we're facing up to what we knew was going to happen all along. 
the same thing is exactly happening with the planet, right? It's like basically being on a train and going, look, if you don't pull the brakes, we're going to crash into that thing. And it's not like we can't see the thing and it's not like we don't know it's there, right? We all know it's there. So that would be my question to you from a Kaczynski point of view. Why do we, re- is it just the complex systems? Why do we refuse to pull the brake? Is it the complex systems thing again that yeah. within complex well, systems, yeah. responsibility is just lost? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't think we've really hit hit those 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 wake up calls yet. I mean, we sort of know it's coming. I mean, yeah, antibiotic resistance is probably there for large groups of people, but it's not it's not leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands or millions of people. At least not not that I know, right? Yeah. It, right right now, it's a relatively small number. Okay, you know, the occasional person who goes in for surgery in the hospital and then you know gets some bug and he can't get rid of it and he dies. Okay, well, that's a, still a relatively small number. So. You know, it's it's and even with the pandemic, right? I mean, we hear these stats about cases and death rates, and you know, but but still, it's it's peanuts, really, when you compare it to population sizes and population growth. Um, you know, it's going to take it's going to take something I think far more shocking and far more tangible before people really really decide we're going to hit the brakes. You know, to, it's it's the old image like from the Black Death. You know, where they're rolling every every third body you're rolling out to the street and you're just leaving it in the street because you can't. I mean, mm. you know, it's it's that going to take that level of death mm. uh, to to really kind of shock people and in, in, into say to thinking, look, if we don't act now, it's it's going to be 100 percent of the bodies are out in the streets and that's it. We're all gone. So, but but we just really haven't quite. You know, we've been able to rationalize our way around it. We haven't really quite seen the. Uh, the, the the real catastrophe that we're facing, and and I I think it's just a matter of time, personally. Do you do you personally do you have any predictions of what that first thing first thing or things may may be? Yeah, well, it's really hard in a really dynamic system. I mean, you know, there there's general and generally speaking, you have environmental mm-hmm. catastrophes and you have technological catastrophes. So. You know, you, you've got two spheres of, of, of crisis modes that we're worried about. So it could be some kind of ecosystem collapse. It could be food supply collapse. It could be, you know, rapid climate change issues uh, on the on the climate side. It could be, uh, you know, I guess in principle, pandemic is, is could could either be an environmental or it could be a technological issue if we decide it's an engineered virus that somebody created in the lab somewhere. Um, you know, and there's several technological disaster scenarios from, you know, things that we would normally call terrorism or, or you know, biotech things run amok to, uh, you know, killer drones that decide they're going to be semi-autonomous, you know, and just going to go around killing things randomly or, you know, I mean, they're self-replicating. They're, they're building robots that can re- reproduce themselves. Uh, you know, they're creating these agile, uh, you know, running, jumping robots that mm-hmm. can kind of move like humans. It's really shocking when you see these videos of what these things can do. Um, I mean, it doesn't take, you know, there's a few more pieces of the puzzle that have to come together and that could happen in the next uh, five, 10, 15 years. And then, you know, then, then just the number of nightmare scenarios multiplies, you know, Mm. rapidly. And, and it only takes one of those, you know, one really catastrophic scenario has to get triggered and, and, you know, then, then we're getting sucked down the hole. So even though you could say anyone, yeah, okay, that one's unlikely and this could probably be stopped. And yeah, if that happened, we would just do this. But when there's so many serious problems coming both from the environment side and from the technological side, it's it's just like, it's like impossible. Like how, we can't possibly dodge all these bullets. You know, you might dodge one or two, but you know, there's 10 or 20 or 30 more coming your way. And, and you know, it, it, it's, there's going to be hell to pay. I, I don't know how else to, to put it. So. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think perhaps 
perhaps one thing that's underneath all of those though is is a a learned helplessness a learned incompetence right is that only let's say you know post war 60 70 years ago i think if there was a food supply shortage or if there was many of these problems people were internally flexible enough to not just constantly adhere to a form of life that they considered normal right uh they'd be like right well we need to go out and you know not to sound too traditional and ye olde but like we need to go out and we're gonna have nettle soup and we're gonna hunt rabbits like that's what we need to do for food now right or sure. all right yeah. well we had a nice garden we need to dig it up now for a for an allotment because bad times are coming whereas now sure. i think i think you'd find just to take it as a metaphor i think you'd quite literally find people who would refuse to dig up their garden to plant an allotment because that's just not normal right that's not modern life and i think that that yeah. might be something yeah, we face is. is that people could survive but they'll just be so enamored in quote-unquote normal life they just won't budge yeah well right there's no doubt that, that a large percentage probably majority of people either will be unwilling or unable to to adapt to some kind of crisis they'll they'll just tough it out and they'll just think well it'll blow over and i'm going to stand my ground and you know they won't even be able to conceive that and then okay then maybe those people are going down i i don't know what to say you know they, they may be the first ones to bite the dust and there always will be some who do know how to get out get out of the system and survive and you know remember how to do some basic farming or basic hunting and kind of can survive in a in a small scale community i mean you know even even here in michigan you know i'm in the metro detroit area so it's you know it's a big modern sort of a suburban area uh, but we're only a couple hours drive from, you know, pretty fertile farmland where people, you know, more or less can survive, could, could grow their own food. There's plenty of water up up uh, northern Michigan. So, you know, we there's people here who would have options and they would be able to get out and somehow, I uh, presumably, would be able to, to, to survive a pretty harsh condition. Now, you know, there are some scenarios where nobody's able to survive. It's really kind of a, a global uh, yeah, I, you don't really know, right? Some kind of globe, who knows, right? Like a radioactive, you know, nuclear war scenario or something that blankets the global. Everybody dies. It doesn't matter what. So there are some really horrible ones where nobody's going to get out. And there's somewhere, you know, the people who do manage to get get back to a simpler form of life and can can acquire the land and the resources to to, to keep themselves alive. Uh, you know, there there will probably probably be a core of humanity that will that will be able to tough it out and, and will relearn because we all knew how to do this at one time we'll relearn how to survive and and there will be a core of people who will survive into the future mm -hmm. and then in a hundred years time they'll have their own stock market and start it all again <laughs> well that's what people will say right they'll say well look why we why do we bring this down they're just going to rebuild it if the system collapses right this is a kind of an argument against revolting um, but actually, that that won't work because the whole modern system was built on fossil fuels, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and it's built on easy access to those fuels. So we had coal and oil that was literally at the surface of the earth, just mm -hmm. just to dig it up or scrape it up or scoop it up in buckets, right? Mm -hmm. And now all of that is gone. That's completely gone. So so when the system sort of starts unraveling and, and collapses down, uh, we have no more easy access. It takes huge amounts of energy to get to those fossil fuels today. And when you don't have the energy supplies to get to your energy supplies, your system is going to spiral out of control and, and it's just going to go down and you won't be able to get to it for thousands of years. I don't know how I mean, it's like so long. You don't even have to worry about that one because you're never going to get back to that level. You can forget about re rebuilding the Internet or any you know, steam engines. Oh, forget that. It's, that's impossible. You know, you'll be burning wood. You'll have wood stoves and animal power. And, you know, yeah, 
good good luck with that. That's that's that'll be the extent of it for a long time, right? Yeah, and then people say, well, we'll we'll think of something, or we'll build alternative energy. And of course, to build an alternative energy system which meets one on one at the moment, our petroleum system is to basically we need a lot of petroleum to be able to do that, which we no longer have anymore, right? So like if we were if we were super sure. sensible, rational, all of a sudden tomorrow every single human is as hyper-rational as can be, you go, right, we need to use every last bit of petroleum to build an alternative system. But we're not doing that, so it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> but what? <laughs> but there you go, but there's a question, okay? So everyone's, you know, we've been doomsaying this whole time, but of course we haven't, we haven't spoken about the utopian god which is coming, which is green energy, sustainable energy, right? That's just going to save everything, yeah. Sure, that's the <laughs> that's the te- the techno optimist view, right? Well, we're just we're just going to have some wait for some great breakthroughs. Maybe it's super efficient solar cells, or maybe it's you know some nice nuclear fusion thing, which we've been talking about for about forty years. That mm. you know that the that's going to be like clean nuclear power, you know, or uh, yeah, whatever. I, you know, there's always that sort of that just over the horizon kind of thing that's going to come along and save us, and and even those things. I mean, those aren't going to work because probably they're not going to materialize, or if they will, they'll be accompanied by lots of negative side effects. And of course, even those things are intended to power a system which, which in some sense is really unsustainable and uncontrollable. So, um, you know, primitive societies have no need for super efficient solar cells because you're not really using electricity or using it at all, right? So, so a lot of this is on a premise of a self-sustaining, self-functioning system. And, you know, if, if, like I say, if any, uh, any time in the next hundred years, this fossil fuel cycle starts to unravel, I, solar power and all these things other than going to do a damn bit of good because it's not, it's not going to, it's, it's not going to be uh, uh, sufficient to, to really sustain the system a, a, in any form that we, that we think of it today. What about space? Space. We're just going to fly to space. That's the, yeah. that's the latest one, right? Fly to space and we'll be fine. Sure, yeah, whatever, right? Go to the moon or go to Mars nice, or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, right. Is it, worth, mean, so it, is it worth your time expelling this ridiculous notion or? Yeah, well, I mean, that's just, you know, that's that's, that's fun fun to talk about and it makes nice movies and, you know, these kind of things. But, um, I mean, I, I don't know, we're so far from 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 uh, proving that, that that you can do that, that you can really survive on the moon or on the, on Mars, you know, I, I suppose in principle, if you, if we could hang on for another 20, 30 years, we might be able to get people out there and then then they might be able to establish some self-sustaining system where you're using the energy locally to, to, you know, to grow things. I, you know, that really would have to be a self-sustaining system. You can't rely on inputs from, from the earth or whatever to keep you going. That's like cheating. Right. So, I suppose, and there's, you know, you can imagine some scenarios where small group groupings of people could could, uh, you know, survive in a semi semi sustainable way. But yeah, I mean, there's so many unknowns. There's so so many question marks about whether that's even possible, how long it would take, and you know, we're going to have accelerating problems here on Earth, which will make that less and less feasible. You know, I don't I don't care what Elon Musk says. You know, he's he's going to have a mighty hard time launching rockets when the system is imploding all around him. So. Um, you know, I, I don't think we need to worry about that one too much. Sounds like a horror movie though, doesn't it? They finally get to space and then everyone on earth just dies and they're <laughs> yeah. just stuck. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. We made it. We made it now. Okay. Now here we are all alone out in the space. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's what Superman or Krypton, right? You're escaping your planet as your planet blows up and, and, uh, and then there you go. You hope you survive, but yeah, good, good luck to that one. So, mm. 
Mm. Okay, okay. There's there is one one question I do really want to get in here because when I spoke to a Jacques yep. a Jacques Lull scholar, he mentioned we mentioned Ted Kaczynski because he sort of said, well, actually, some of the the reinterest in Lull is because of there's been a big interest in Kaczynski. And he said, you know, a lot of people come to Alul's work, uh, specifically technological society, um, because of they've, they've seen it cited by uh, Kaczynski. And he sort of made clear to me that Alul's work really is completely split down the middle. You have the anti-tech critique on one side and you have the religious side. And he said to take one side on its own is just to basically enter into a biased Alul. And this is what Kaczynski did. He took one side of a lull without the other, and that's why the conclusions for Kaczynski happened, because he didn't take the other side. And it's interesting, and perhaps this is one of the reasons why Kaczynski specifically takes up Christianity at, at near the end of, um, I think it's as what it's almost as an appendix in Antitech Revolution, of he takes up Christianity. And do, do, what do you, first, I guess firstly, what do you make of the, the statement there regarding Kaczynski's sort of biased reading of Alul? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I guess, you know, I, I'm, I've been reading and teaching Alul for many years myself. So I know, I know quite a bit about his technological work. I know less about his religious or theological work. Um, my view, they were relatively distinct areas uh, of writing and thinking. So, I mean, you know, you read uh, Alul's uh, Technological Society, and, and, you know, there's a few little references to, to God and religion there, but it's really uh, an entirely secular kind, kind of work. Um, and, and to me, just, I mean, without sort of going into, yeah, I have to do more detailed research to kind of flesh it out. But, you know, the, the thought is all those arguments stand on their own. It, it doesn't require a Christian view or an anti-Christian view. I, I think all the critiques and the analysis of technology really is an independent self self-standing kind of argument in Alul. So I would tend to disagree with this, this fellow that, I, you know, I don't, I don't see where you need or, or, or require the, 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 the Christian thinking, the theological angle. I, um, you know, if, if anything, that tends to water down revolutionary action because Christians are somehow, you know, have this sort of uh, misguided optimism, either that God's going to step in and save everybody when it gets too bad, or, well, in any case, you die and you go to heaven. So, well, what's the heck? It's not such a big deal because I still get to go see God. So, you know, they sort of have this little kind of fairy tale, you know, happy ending story if you're a Christian and you and you don't get too worked up about, you know, the fate of the earth. And, in some weird ways, you you actually want want to see the earth go down because that's sort of the end of uh, times, end of days, or something. And now Jesus is coming back, or whatever crazy thing you happen to think. So you know, Elul was not like that. Like I say, he was more of a kind of a renegade theologian. Um, you know, Kaczynski, um, like I say, had never really talked much about Christianity. I don't recall the details of what he said at the end of Antitech Revolution. Um, you know, I, I I would say, I don't know, I I would treat those relatively distinct. I think they're relatively separate arguments. Um, I mean, it's a different kind of an argument if you're talking to someone who's really invested in Christian theology. Like I say, they view things in, in kind of this eschatological form where they're making assumptions about where the world is heading and the afterlife and so forth. So it's a different kind of discussion. But, you know, I, I don't think the basic critique of technology is affected. Okay, okay. So Kaczynski is, I mean, I got the impression that he is, but he doesn't really state it outright. He's an atheist? 
Yeah, he never really says. I mean, he, he presumably he's a kind of a, you know, ra- rational secularist. Mm. You know, he's he's talked little funny things about, you know, spirits in nature and a little bit kind of, you know, whimsical sort of things in a couple of interviews and okay, you know, maybe maybe he's being serious, maybe he's just being being funny. Um but nothing that I've seen. I mean, nothing. I, I guess I would assume. Yeah, he's ba- basically kind of a, a a secular, either agnostic or or maybe an atheist in some sense. And he's he's certainly not using that as a, as part of his his analysis or his critique. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So what do you what do you think people get wrong about Kaczynski's work? Where do you think is there? Do you think there's a clear path where you just think people come to the wrong conclusions about it well they they put way too much emphasis on the crimes and and the victims and they don't and they don't take the trouble to look at the actual arguments the actual anti-tech argument and it it's it's partly their fault because probably people are a little bit lazy it's partly the fault of the media because the media loves to talk about the uh the sensationalistic aspects of of kaczynski and sort of demonize him and talk about you know sort of his his background and his history and act like he's just some kind of crazed uh, killer or something and you know so that the media does a does its usual fine job of biasing people against somebody that they don't like and so it takes a lot of uh, sort of independent work where people have to kind of dig into it themselves they have to actually buy kaczynski's book or one of his books and actually read it and think about it and and follow up on some of the sources and check some of his footnotes and you know maybe maybe get a hold of a lul's book or something by mumford or illich and you know spend a little time reading those um to try to really get sort of the complete picture you know i i tried to spell these out in a couple of my books so i I did one book that was called confronting technology which was kind of an an anthology of of technical critiques over time over history and i built up the history going back to the ancient greeks showing that for there was a long series of uh, of thinkers major thinkers Mm. who were skeptical or critical of technology and that's sort of a nice, a nice sort of starting point where people really can start, sort of take the history seriously. It's not just a recent thing. It's not just some lone crackpot guy who's got some crazy ideas. There's a, there's a very long, skeptical, very skeptical history of, of technology. So that's one, one piece. You know, then I did my own book, uh, Metaphysics of Technology, which tried to spell out a kind of philosophy or metaphysical view of why technology seems to be so powerful. And I tried to sort of flesh that out in kind of an, uh, a, a rational, philosophical sort of way. So, I mean, there are there are books and readings. People have to do a little bit of work to kind of get to them because you're not going to get these things in the mainstream media. So, um, you know, I guess if if that if there's sort of a plea out there, right? It's it's to sort of take the idea seriously. Go to the go to the core text. Go to Kaczynski's book. Read the actual manifesto. Mm-hmm. Read his couple of books. Maybe take a look at my books. Maybe read Alul's book. And then you really start to get a real appreciation for what's going on and how serious the, the problem is that that we're all facing here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the media struggles as well because, of course, they want to demonize him as a madman. But then equally in the same breath, they're reluctant to admit to, admit to the time that he spent with Henry Murray, right? Which I think, you know, I know Kaczynski himself has said that that didn't infect him. But I mean, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a tough one to sort of say whether or not he, is he lying there or is he, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's not his days in Harvard there as an undergrad. In yeah, with the yeah. Uh, the strange. I mean, I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but I mean, I'm fairly sure now it's known that it was MK Ultra. 
Yeah, that's yeah. what they're saying. Or it's, or it's indirectly, it's, you know, the people who are connected to that. It was, I don't think it was part of it, but yeah, that whole thing is really overblown. I mean, it was really sort of minor experiments. They were stressing, you know, individual undergrads to kind of see how they reacted to personal stress on ideas that they personally held uh, important. And uh, I mean, it was really, really very mild, really, very, um, inconsequential. I mean, I've seen some of the transcripts of the actual dialogue between Kaczynski and, and his interrogators. So, I mean, it's, it's a really convenient story to kind of pin the blame on the CIA or, you know, some, some evil, uh, you know, lunatics who really warped his mind or something, but, mm. but that's important, right? That's part of the media story. They want to show that somehow this guy has a warped mind and that's why he did what he did. Not that he had good ideas, not that he was right about things. They, they, they don't want anybody to think that. They want to show that this is a warped, damaged individual and that's why he did what he did. And and they really jump jump uh, jump through hoops to try to convince people that there was you know this he was damaged he was you know had an illness when he was two and his mom dropped him on his head and you know everything they can think of to explain why this guy is so damaged rather than just saying well shoot he was a smart guy he got ideas he drew from Alul and other thinkers and he came to logical conclusions you know they just they just don't want to deal with the arguments uh, on face value so they'll come up with every every story under the sun to try to discredit discredit the man rather than the ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, just out of interest, was uh, is Diogenes the first in the long line of anti-tech philosophers? <laughs> Diogenes. Was, well, he uh, was the first one. He saw the he saw the uh, he had a cup, didn't he? And then he saw the boy cup his hands, so he threw his cup away because he didn't need it. Yeah, because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I didn't actually didn't talk about him in my book. Okay. I'd, I would go back to, I mean, uh, even P- Plato and Socrates, um, you know, I mean, they were they were critical of the technologies of their day. Lao Tzu and some of the early Taoist thinkers were, were critical of their simple technologies of the day. So, I mean, it really goes back to four or five hundred B.C., mm. uh, both East and West, where, where, where uh, prominent thinkers were, were really skeptical of even the very simple technologies. That's what's so striking. You, you see these guys criticizing technologies and it's like nothing, you know, it's like you say, it's a, it's a, it's a cup or it's a pen and it's a pencil or it's, you know, uh, really simple things. And you're like, oh, my God, that's like so simple. And yet they can see that somehow there's there's a problem with this thing and it's not good and it's and it's heading in the wrong direction. They they could see it back then. It's really remarkable what, what some of these uh, older thinkers have said it's really a striking story yeah. i mean it's like the the classic case of ned ludd right i mean where luddite comes from is i mean yeah. you think you think he would be taken on like a factory or something but it was just a was it a loom it's like two looms, yeah, look, two well, looms st- i think he broke st- stocking loom right it was a machine <laughs> that made stockings and the guys who hand knitted stockings didn't want the machine making the stockings so they're like what the hell we're gonna go bust these things up so they just broke in and smashed the machines like literally right so um yeah, I mean it's a simple little simple little thing. As a, you know, today we would laugh at these little mechanical looms that were making stockings, but uh, at the time that was the threat, and and the guys took action, and then some of them paid paid with their lives. I mean, it's really really striking what uh, what has happened in the past, and it really gives you a feel for what could happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there anything you'd like to add about anti tech revolution um, that that you feel we've we've missed? Um, no, it's, it's a serious academic book, you know, it's maybe in some ways not as accessible as, uh, Kaczynski's first book, Technological Slavery, um, but it's a serious work, it's well documented, it's well cited, um, 
you know, for people who are, who are motivated to kind of look into it and, and really want to kind of get, get the, that next level of thinking from Kaczynski, it's, it's a perfect kind of a, a book for people to, to go into. It's not, I would say it's not light reading. So you need to sort of, you know, be prepared to, to sort of, you know, give, give it its due and, and kind of press ahead, uh, you know, with, with uh, due moderation and, and sort of, you know, get what you can from it. Um, I mean, there's more stuff coming, right? As far as uh, we know, he's working on a volume two of, uh, of technological slavery. And uh, we think that will be out in, in a year or so. So there'll be some kind of follow-up response, maybe maybe to uh, some of the stuff that's in Anti-Tech Revolution. Uh, I'm actually not really sure. I don't really know what's going to be in the volume two. Um, but it, I think things will come out before terribly long, a year, maybe two years at most. So um, it would be good if people are curious to read the, the first two books, just so they know the background and they have the context and, uh, and then be looking ahead to, to future things that will be coming out. Well, uh, well, do you think you'll get back in contact with him around the time or is that sort of, is that era sort of over for you? Yeah, I, th- yeah, I have not been in contact with him for uh, four or five years now. It's, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, that phase seems to be over. He's, he's been, He's been mostly corresponding with a couple of personal assistants and his publisher. Uh, For the last couple of years, he's had severe limitations on his uh, ability to send mail because of trivial postage problems and and silly things that the prison has been doing to disrupt his ability to communicate. So he's really been forced to limit his communications to the very essential people. So he's dealing with his publisher, his lawyer, one or two people who are acting kind of as personal assistants. And so that's, that's really about it. So um, we, th- we think and hope the situation will be better in the future. Maybe, maybe there'll be some, uh, some uh, occasion for me to contact him again. Uh, I, I have no problem with that. I'd be happy to, to do so. If something comes up that's relevant, I may send him a letter and just to, uh, I've done this uh, just in the past to, to inform him about things in the news, maybe that he's not, uh, not aware of. So yeah, you, you never know. You never know what will, uh, what will come up in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay that seems like a good place to finish up um david scabina thanks very much yeah james thank you thanks for having me on again